spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Sometimes things are just here in a flash. It's episode 285 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and man, did that premiere of season six of The Flash sneak up on us, right? It's this week, this coming Tuesday, so we're going to be talking to the cast and producers of The Flash on the show this week. Got to sit down with them at San Diego Comic-Con. We'll talk about the upcoming season, maybe a little bit of crisis and a bunch of stuff, but I mean, there's a ton going on. On the show this week, also going to talk to Keiko Agena from Fox's Prodigal Son. More about season one of that show. Got a review of Treadstone coming up for you. Seis Manos from Netflix going to give you an early review of that that comes out this week. You know, we start things off at comics, so let's get to it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer and co-creator of Deadpool, Fabian Niciasa, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hard copy or a digital copy, it doesn't matter whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and how about this? Let's go with the brand new issue of Ghost Rider, number one, the 2019 edition from Marvel Comics. Ed Brisson on the writing there, Aaron Cooter on the art, Jason Keith on the colors, and VCS Joe Caramagna on the letters. Cooter and Dean White doing the cover for this, by the way. And Johnny Blaze, basically, in this story is the king of hell. Now, he's back on Earth, though, because of something that's happened in hell. And it happens right away in the beginning of the issue. So when you read it, you'll understand. Or if you've already read it, you know what's going on. Here's the thing, though. Danny Ketch is also a part of the story as well, but he's in a bad way right now. Some personal stuff's happening, and and things are not good, but he is still a ghost rider as well. So and he, he basically is just doing that because he has to sort of thing. So there seems to be a war coming, but something interesting happens near the end of this issue. And it might actually push Danny to do something he either doesn't want to do, never thought he would have to do or both. It just depends on how you feel about it when you read it and it's this this issue while there's some stuff going on in the background you kind of know who the principal players are going to be and what's going to be happening or at least you think you do and then towards the end of the book it's like okay so there there and i do this spoiler free for a reason but there's a character here that you wouldn't have thought at first could be an adversary and might end up being an adversary at some point in the book here's the thing though the question that comes up for me is that if this is for the greater good or if it's a manipulation type of thing. If you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. When you do read it, if you haven't yet, you'll go, oh, that's what he was talking about. Because it doesn't seem as cut and dry as it might seem, I don't think. But again, this is one of those things where as the story kind of maneuvers itself, those answers sort of, those answers become clearer. Let me put it that way. Now, it would have been really easy for the art to get jumbled with in this book with everything that's happening on the page at certain points. But Cooter and Keith do a very good job of balancing things out so nothing is lost on the page. And and I really... That, that's tougher to do than I think a lot of us realize because when... Especially with Ghost Rider, there's fire everywhere and chains and demons and stuff like that. And you're like, okay, 
what's going on, but the way that things were laid out and drawn, very, very well done in this book. Now, there's definitely an interesting premise going on here. I really enjoy what the setup for the story is, and it could have set up more than one epic battle in this story. So for that reason alone, I think I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to put this in the pull box. This is a pull for me, Ghost Rider number one from Marvel Comics. Very, very intrigued to see where this thing goes next. Time to have some strange skies over East Berlin, the first issue from Boom Studios and some names of creators that just quake in my boots trying to pronounce them. So let's let I'm going to do, you know how I am with names. Here we go. Best I can. Jeff Loveness on the writing, Lissandro Esteren on the art, Patricio Del Pesce on the colors, and Steve Wands on the letters, Evan Cagle doing the cover art. Anybody's name I butchered there. I do apologize. We are in 1973 Germany. That much I can tell you. Now, the synopsis really is, is that there's a, a, a spy, an American spy named Herring, and he's stationed on the east side of the Berlin Wall, and the Cold War is happening. It doesn't seem to have an end to it, but basically it gets put in a mission behind enemy lines. It's supposed to infiltrate East German intelligence and learns about something that the Soviets have that could really change the conflict. Now, I won't exactly tell you what that is. When, I, when the book calls itself Strange Guys Over East Berlin, there is a literal reason for that in this story that you will see when you read it. The story really tackles, though, what it's like to be embedded in the life of a spy and the toll that it can take on a person in their psyche. And that's an underlying theme of this book that really, really made me enjoy it. It gives a, it gives no days off a whole new meaning. I could tell you that much right now. It's not just a hashtag on Twitter anymore, kids. Now, beyond that, there's very little that we know about the mystery itself in the first issue. I mean, something really creepy happens, but... The answers are very few and far between. The art for this book has a very cool, almost pastel look to it. that makes things feel very appropriate for the time period and the setting. So I thought if that was a conscious choice, it was very, very it was a very, very good one. This is one of those cases where kind of dragging out the mystery might be an anomaly that might actually make the story better. A lot of times I'll criticize for that saying, well, I don't know what's going on. So it's hard for me to be interested. This one, I feel like I know there's going to be a payoff and I don't want it too soon because I want to be, it was like when you're watching Lost, right? You wanted answers and and Lost didn't always give you some, but when it gave you the bits and pieces that it did, it made you more and more intrigued. And I think that that's kind of where this story is going. There's enough with the underlying theme of the truth and lies to keep me interested into the story until we find out those answers. So put this one in the poll box for me as well. Strange Guys over East Berlin from Boom Studios. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to talk to Keiko Agena about Prodigal Son from Fox next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Mary Mauser from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah, I'm talking about Fox's Prodigal Son again. You know why? Because it's a pretty darn good show every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Just happen to have one of the scene stealers from the show with me this week. It's Keiko again. Keiko, how you doing? Hi, James. I'm awesome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So, like I said, we, we're two episodes in now. What's the fan response been like for you so far? I, I can only gauge from social media, mostly. Um, but it's been very positive and, and sweet. Um, it's it's kind of been overwhelming, actually. It's it's been really nice. I'm 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 a little bit 
I'm a little bit ver verging on um, a little social media uh, uh, addiction more than I normally have just because of all of the uh, – I've been following all the prodigal son uh, tweets and et cetera, et cetera. And how could you not because there's been a ton of them. So that's always a good thing too. Yeah. Now, we actually haven't gotten to see too much of your character so far, but she has been a bit of a scene stealer so far in the show as far as I'm concerned anyway. So can you tell us a little bit more about Adrissa and things we might not know about her yet? Um, well, so you've watched uh, the first two, two episodes, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically what we know about her so far is that she she's obviously um, a little excessively enamored with uh, Malcolm Bright. Um, and that definitely uh, is not going away anytime uh, soon in the episodes that uh, we've taped so far. Well, now, right now we're on episode eight. But I, but I think it's more uh, finding out how that kind of plays out her, her quirkiness. Because the thing that I, I like about her is that she's uh, like hi, very highly skilled in some ways and very and has low. Like, for example, she's she's very intelligent and competent and capable in her job, but in a lot of social situations. And um, uh, I think that starts to play out more of a, a social cues that she might not get or jokes that she, she tries to make and doesn't quite land. You kind of, those things start to come out uh, in the later episodes. Now you brought it up, so I'm going to, I'm going to roll with it. She does seem to be oh. very interested in Malcolm in more ways than one. So why do you think she's so drawn to yeah. I think there's something uh, for, for her, as soon as she saw him, he's different. And I think that she, she's, she was almost struck by it. He's, he's fascinating to her because I think that she uh, recognizes the aspects of him that are a little off. And even, you might even say broken, but I don't think that that is a downside to um, her appreciation for him. I think she finds it she finds that aspect fa fascinating. It, it's a, a lot of a lot of that aspect to it. And also, he, he he's so, she's not he's not the normal person that she sees walking into the morgue. I mean, he's an attractive guy. He's in a gorgeous, expensive suit, um, complimenting her her abilities at what she does, which nobody does from the outside world. And so, I think that throws her too. Now, I asked Frank Hartz about this a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to ask you about the humor yeah. that we actually see. In this show, I mean, a show with like horrific crime scenes and all kinds of serious stuff going on. How important do you feel like it is to have those lighthearted moments in the show? Well, to me, I love it. And I mean, I think Frank is uh, so good also at, uh, um, and Bellamy. I mean, so there's so many little, and uh, Martin, uh, Michael Sheen, obviously, has so many moments where uh, the writers have, have uh, layered in some comedic tones to it. T to me, it's always my favorite part in this show or other shows that I watch where you have these bright pops of comedy and things that are dark because I never cry so hard as when a comedy will flip the switch on me. I'm, I, I and I like in our show, it's not necessarily that you'll, you'll cry, but I like the twist that it'll, it'll have a, a laugh that it will surprise right. you. And to me, right. that's always my favorite part is being surprised um, when I'm watching content. We're talking to Keiko Agena, who is playing Adrissa Tanaka on Prodigal Son. That airs on Fox every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, Keiko, I'm no fan of snakes, okay? And and there were more than there was more than one appearance by a snake in this second episode. So now, are you really afraid yeah. of snakes? But if you aren't, what's something else that you would not be anxious to share a scene with? Oh, 
um, no, I, I'm not um, afraid of snakes. They actually had live snakes and obviously CGI snakes also on terrifying. the uh, show. Either I, way, know. terrifying. Uh, <laughs> uh, they were great. Oh, I loved them. I don't think that I have fear of, uh, of any type of animal, but I don't think that I would like being high up. I think I, I used to have a really bad fear of height. Um, it's a little better now, but that, that would be, that would be hard. Oh, or, or roller coasters or anything like that. That I, I don't think I could, could, um, handle that very well at all. I hate to give fuel to the writer's room here. Of course, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want them to hear this and go, Oh, so you know what we should do to Keiko? No, I know. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no. That's yeah. I don't need, I, I wouldn't be able to hold it together on a, on an even small roller coaster or something like that. I, I, I would, I would lose it. You and me both. Now, we talked about your social media addiction a little bit, you know, how, how it's kind of growing. Yeah. Here's something it seems like you're trying to do. It looks like you're trying to create a name for the Prodigal Son fandom. So is hashtag prodigies officially a thing now, or do we really need to push this thing to get the word out? Well, I don't know. It's so new, right? Our show is in its baby phases, and uh, I, I don't know her screen name, but I think that her name is Amanda. There was someone who actually... Um, Long, I think her name is Amanda, but um, uh, if you go through the prodigies, I think it, it, it's, it's just it's sort of just being birthed now. So I think that I, I want to give her credit where credit is due. But yeah, no, Lou Diamond. There were a couple of people that said, you know, that's not bad. I mean, I like it, but it's you know, it's not really for me to decide it's if people choose to use the hashtag or not. I mean, it's one word. It's catchy. It's easy to remember. I think it's a winner. Do you like it? Yeah. You think it's a winner? Yeah, okay, let's good, do this. Good, good. See? Let's All right, just, we're awesome. Let's I'm just lock it. it in and make this happen right now. <laughs> okay, great. Locked in. It's official. Now, it looks like Adrissa might have some competition for Malcolm's affections. I mean, Danny's already okay. seen the inside of his apartment. So I, I'm just saying. <laughs> now, do I sense a love triangle in the works here? Or do you feel like Ma- Malcolm might actually just be incapable of any kind of relationship? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I think before we can get to the triangle stage, it would have to be, I think the first obstacle might be Malcolm himself. So we actually have, I to think, have a line uh, segment. I think, we have to have a line segment first before we can have an actual triangle. Right. It, right. It, yes. That, it, that, I'm going to steal that. I, that is the perfect way to describe it. Um, yeah. Right now, it's a very clear point. I think Adresa is a strong point, and she has a very strong point of view about how she feels. I don't know if it clearly connects to the other point as of yet. So um, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to explore that avenue, first of all. Now, Keiko, before I let you go, does Adresa know who Malcolm's father is at this point? Can you tell us that? And do you, th- what do, you think, do you think it would change how she feels about him if and when she finds out? Because it's not too clear after two episodes whether or not she actually knows. Oh, I think she knows. I think she knows probably almost immediately after that first time she meets him in the um, pilot episode because she already is fascinated with his father. So uh, she would definitely, um, <laughs> I'm sure she, she did some either Google searching or asking people who um, Bright was in, um, almost in, well, actually, that's not true. I take that back. As I'm rolling through in my mind, she wouldn't have been able to know until the end of um, or throughout the first episode. So I think it wasn't able to Google search it in that way. But um, pre- I'm definitely by uh, by the end of that whole episode, she 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 firmly knows uh, his lineage. I think for her, it's even more 
is odd to say, but it's even more intriguing because she's she, she was already fascinated with the surgeon as a an individual because for for a lot of other reasons which I won't get into. But but um, yeah, so I don't think that it changes her feeling. It probably enhances it. Nothing wrong with that. So right, exactly. Make sure you're watching Prodigal Son every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox, and make sure you're watching it again and again and again on the Fox Now app as well. It's Idrissa Tanaka, Keiko again. Thank you so much oh for joining God. me this week. Thank you so much, James, for having me. I hope uh, some of my sentences connected. Hey, this is comic book writer Steve Orlando, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. From super spies to super assassins, it's time to talk about USA Network's Treadstone, which is not premiering until October the 15th of this year. But got a chance to see the first episode a little bit early. Maybe you did, too. They had that special sneak preview right after wrestling not too long ago. So it's not coming out until October the 15th, but they did give a little sneak peek of it. So I thought I'd talk about it, but I don't want to spoil it just in case you missed that special preview. So I'm not going to spoil anything. But what I will tell you is that this is basically inspired by the world of Jason Bourne. And instead of talking about super spies, we're talking about super assassins this time. Basically sleeper agents that are all over the world that are being awoken. I think that's the correct term. Awoken. Kind of one at a time and by accident. That's the interesting thing about this first episode is that you get to see there is a, a main focal point of this episode and we also see things that take place in the past and in the present and by the past I mean a couple of decades at least in the past is is basically uh, I'm ballparking it for you because I'm trying not to spoil anything because it's pretty it's a pretty specific point in time and the time frame actually makes a difference so I don't want to spoil that for you but I will say that there there is a main focal point of this, but it's not focused on a lot in this first episode. This first episode is basically, hey, here's the sleeper agents from the past. Here's the sleeper agents in the present. And here's somebody that is going to be looking into this whole thing and finding out what's going on. There's always an outsider that doesn't know what like the project is. And in this case, it's Operation Treadstone that gets kind of pulled into it to try to find out what's going on. And that actually ends up being Tara Coleman, who is played by Tracy Afechior. And very well so far, by the way, we don't see a whole lot of her in the first episode, but she's definitely clever. We get to see that a couple of times in this first episode where it seems like she has no idea what's going on. And then once she gets into the game, she knows exactly what's going on. And she is ready to do the job. And she's actually given a job by somebody pretty important, by the way. But these sleeper agents seem very innocent enough. You know, they have regular jobs. They're just kind of, uh, one of them is a very working class person. And all of a sudden, just like that, they are now sleeper agents. And you see one of them at least get activated fully in this first episode. So, here's the thing with Treadstone, though. And I, I was really looking forward to this show. But at times, it was a bit slow. It was a bit mundane because you're seeing how regular these sleeper agents' lives are, and then all of a sudden, they're pulled out of that. There's certainly plenty of tense moments in this first episode, but it it was a little slow in getting going. It's like, okay, I know that these are sleeper agents, 
But now let's 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 get to it here. Let's let's get moving because I know that this is a limited series too. I think we, there's only ten episodes. So I'm thinking, okay, how, we need to kickstart this. I know that you can do a born movie in two hours, maybe two hours, fifteen minutes, or something like that. But I felt like this needed to move a little bit faster pace because you've got that limited series label attached to it. Maybe if I didn't know that, I wouldn't feel that way. But that you know, that's kind of the vibe. That I was getting. I'm worried that I'm not going to get there quick enough or certain things are going to be rushed later on in the series to get to the end. So it was a little bit slow at certain points. It also, jumping from the past to the present wasn't as seamless as I would have liked. There were times where it took me a minute to realize where I was. The Petra character, that was easy to figure out. When you're watching the show, you'll figure that out at some point. But everything else, it's like, okay, where am I? And then you find your bearings and they pull you out of there. Maybe that off-balance beat is a little bit on purpose. And it makes sense why we're going from the past to the present too, by the way. That will make perfect sense. But what I'm saying is is that the transition from the two wasn't exactly great. And that, that's all I'm going to say. There's a lot of very clever beats in this show, though. The action is pretty good. It's hard to say it's up to par with a Bourne movie because the action was so fantastic in those movies that I don't think that's a fair comparison. You're also talking about TV budget versus movie budget too. So there's a little bit to, to do with that, but there's certainly some good action in this. As far as you know, fluidness of the action, maybe not as good as a movie, but as far as clever beats... In the action, I will say that that was very, very interesting. There's a couple of moments that make you go, whoa, especially with the Soyeon Park character played by Hyo Jun Yahan. Man, she has got some really interesting parts in this first episode. Very, very cool. So, I mean, she's probably, as far as, as, far as action scenes go, she's probably the best one up to par of the entire cast so far as I would as I would say. So I mean again, this is very much a a origin type of episode. This first episode doesn't get really deep into the characters. It's kind of like, okay, here's who everybody is. Here's kind of them starting to be activated or you know, you'll see little glitches there of I don't understand what's going on, but there's clearly something going on sort of thing. And then you've got the whole okay, who's really responsible for this? What is Project Treadstone? Was it shut down? Was it not shut down? And where are we going with this? And then there's the main focal point, or what seems like it's going to be the main focal point of the season that's also put in there as well, which I will not spoil for you. So while maybe I built Treadstone up too much in my own mind because I love the Jason Bourne franchise, it wasn't a bad start. It just wasn't the solid start that I was hoping for. Like Amazon's Jack Ryan grabbed me immediately and that's the best thing that I can really compare to Treadstone. I'm not I don't usually like to make comparisons, but there it's a similar type of vibe with these two shows. And Treadstone did not grab me like Jack Ryan did on Amazon right away from the get-go. Hopefully, after a little bit of a slow start, things will pick up in the next couple of episodes. And I'm still going to watch. I'm still very intrigued. Still love the franchise. And I want to see what happens. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Treadstone. Up next, going to talk about Seis Manos from Netflix. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, my name is Rafael Albuquerque. And you are listening to Down Nerdy Podcast. 
just some demonic powers in a border town of Mexico. No, no big deal or anything. It's Seis Manos from Viz Media and Netflix, which premiere is actually available on Netflix right now. But I got to see the first four episodes early and wanted to give my spoiler-free review of what I've seen of the season so far. And I want to start out with the visuals and powerhouse Animation Studios, who was responsible for Castlevania on Netflix as well. And let me tell you, for, this is based in 1970s Mexico. And I mean, there's some kind of flashbacks involved there too, or envisions therein. So you, you get more than just Mexico in this. But I got to tell you, aesthetically and visually, this is exactly what I was hoping it would be down to the character designs, which are very 70s, especially Mike Coulter's Brister. I love that character, first of all. And that character was just so 70s. It reminded his character actually reminded me of the black exploitation movies of that time. It just took me back there. And then you've also got characters like Isabella. And you've also got Silencio, who is so intense. And then you balance that out with Jesus, who's played brilliantly, voiced by Johnny Cruz. And, and it, this family just rounds itself out. Basically, it's orphans that were raised by a martial arts master, practicing Taoism too, by the way, in Mexico, that are kind of involved in this. I mean, you want to talk about throwing everything at a story. I mean, you've got demonic powers, you've got cartels and all this other stuff, rituals all over the place, not to mention the biggest of big bads, by the way, El Balde, who is played by Danny Trejo, and man alive is this dude huge and evil. But I'll get into that in a second because I want to go back to the visuals for a minute. It wasn't just the character designs. It was that if you're watching this show, the animation itself feels like it's straight out of the era as well. Every now and then you'll see these little curls on the screen, these little lines and things like that. And, and kids, by the way, when we used to watch television, we actually had to turn the, ch turn the channels with a hand crank on the TV. That's what it used to look like. That was before HD even existed. Yet, I say that not as a criticism. I say that is to say... It's still HD, it's still beautiful, but it's got that almost like a mask over to be like, yeah, I'm showing you this in HD, but this is what it looked like in the 70s as well. And I love that. And not just in the, the social beats of the time as well and, and things that were happening and prejudices of that time are also a part of this. Not a huge part of it, but it's it rings true in so many ways. And then you get into the actual story of what's going on and the tragedy that's in the, the that is part of the lives of these three orphans and Isabella Silencio and Jesus who are together and, and they have they just continue to have tragedy in their lives, but at the end of the day they're family and they're gonna get down to the business of not only what's going on in the small town of San Simon, who seems to be which seems to be overrun by some sort of demonic entities. And then you've got, by the way, El Balde from Danny Trejo, who has got some weird ritual stuff going on. And again, I don't want to get too far into this, but some freaky stuff happens. And 
There's just so much I want to say, but we'll spoil so much. There's there's at least one shocking moment in the first episode where you go, oh, okay, I see where this is going, and you do not see where this is going. I thought I did, and I was stunned from the first episode, and that really just captured my attention right away, thinking, oh, so this is the direction I thought you were going, completely not the direction that I thought you were going, and then you move on with the story from there. Now, if you're familiar with martial arts movies from the 70s or even in the 80s as well, I'll go into 80s with this too, or, you know, even kind of other movies, other similar movies of of this, like cop movies or, or movies about drug cartels and stuff like that. There are a lot of similar beats here, and I think it's more of an homage than anything else. So there are certain parts of the story that you'll probably... You're probably going to get, but at the same time, you're not going to get all of the story. And you're, and it's very much character-driven show. It's written very well. The acting is done very, very well. And basically, it's everybody you know wants to fight for their family and fight for their town. That is really baked into this. And the action sequences in this are next level good. You want to talk about Mexican anime at its finest? This is absolutely it. There's some this you see stuff like this and you say thank god this wasn't in live action because it's so much cleaner and crisper done in animation and in this anime style. This is exactly how I wanted to see a story like this be told because there were no limits on what you could do. You can bring in the supernatural you can bring in all these ancient rituals. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a scene in the fourth episode where I'm looking at I'm looking at it, and it's this like trippy sort of thing that happens. And again, I can't spoil it, so I can't give you any more information than that. But when you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. And I'm thinking, you could not do this and do it well in live action. There's just no way. It's just presented so much better in animation and by someone like Powerhouse animation studios and viz media who gets anime this is what they do and they do it so well in seis manos now i'm not going to say that seis manos is for everybody but as someone who i i love those early martial arts movies and i i've just always been a fan of those so that drew me to seis manos and i was not disappointed in that but just the in-depth emotion of all of these characters and this family and how they're dynamic. And I say family and it's it's family by choice. That's one of the things that is a is a really interesting underlying theme of this. Is it's family by choice, not by blood. But the bond is so strong even though there's some serious stuff that happens. Especially with Silencio. That makes you go, wow, I can't believe that this is happening. And then you've got the interesting dynamic between Brister and... And Garcia as well, who's a police officer in the area who just, you know, at first, I will tell you this, in the beginning, she's like, nothing ever happens in this town. And then that's the quintessential, like, check mark of, well, stuff's about to happen when you're watching any show or movie, isn't it? So she gets what she wants, and Angelica Valle does such a great job with that character as well. But I love the dynamic between her character and Mike Coulter's character of Brister. There's just so many great character interactions in here and character-driven stories. That, to me, along with the action, 
is the beating heart of Seis Manos and why you should definitely be putting this in your list and binge-watching this on Netflix. Another home run by Powerhouse Animation Studios, and it seems like Netflix is starting to find their groove with these anime adaptations. I can't wait for more Castlevania. We've got the Cyberpunk 2077 thing that's going to be happening as well. So many great things happening with anime on Netflix. And Seis Manos, just another major example of that. I can't wait to watch the final four episodes. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Seis Manos on Netflix. Up next, going to tackle some nerd news. And, yep, that Birds of Prey trailer on the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm writer Margaret Scott, and this is the Down and Nerdy podcast. Praying on the mind of fanboys everywhere. It is time for nerd news. We'll get to some New York Comic Con stuff in a second, but... I want to talk about this trailer for a Harley, for, well, that slip of the tongue, but for a good reason. Birds of Prey and the Fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn, the first trailer that came out for the movie that's coming out in the beginning of February. Here's the deal, okay? Was it very Harley-centric? Yes, it is. Was it going to be from the very beginning? Yes, it was. Now, before I get to why that is, I mean, it looks a lot of fun, doesn't it? And also Ewan McGregor's Black Mask, while, you know, a bit eccentric and certainly not what you get from the traditional Black Mask, I mean, Ewan McGregor was one of my favorite parts of this trailer. Obviously, Margot Robbie is is amazing as Harley, okay? But Ewan McGregor could really steal the show here. I know that it's it's not the Black Mask that we're used to, and maybe you got to open your mind just a tad to figure that out, but, I mean, this could really be a great performance from Ewan McGregor, so I'm looking forward to that. And it's not like Huntress and Black Canary aren't badass in this. Cassandra Kane, eh, I mean, that's that's one of the characters maybe I've got the most concern about from this trailer. But at the same time, this trailer just confirms to me even more what I said the last time when I was talking about the poster. And that is this is the Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti. Harley Quinn. It's that this this movie is the comic come to life with the Birds of Prey. As a matter of fact, there was a new Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey comic that was announced at New York Comic Con coming out in guess when February from Connor and Palmiotti. It's going to be a sequel to their 2013 story arc, and it's going to be on DC's Black Label for issue mini series. If you want to go ahead and pre-order that at your local comic book shop, but I mean. There's precedent for this, and it, it's, you know, that's what you have to realize is that this is not coming out of left field. It's not coming out of nowhere. This is something that, you know, maybe not completely has been done before, and it maybe it's just because it's not the way you want it done, per se, doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work and it's not going to be a good movie. Here's the other thing, and I, I God, am I sick of bringing this up, but here's the deal. As comic book movie fans and as comic book fans, we have to realize that for every one of us, you have to have at least three more people for every one of us to go see a movie like this for it to succeed and get more comic book movies. Seriously. Think about the comic book TV shows. Same thing. You have to have a non-comic book fandom following in order for this stuff to succeed, there are a lot of us, okay? A lot of comic book fans, a lot of fans of this nerd stuff that were here long before the general public loving this stuff, okay? And this is ours. But at the same time, you have to realize that without that general movie-going public, 
these kinds of movies in this volume can't exist. If the general public doesn't get interested in comic book movies, we never get Black Canary and Huntress in a movie, probably ever. Certainly not in any kind of proximity to a starring role, okay? So Harley Quinn is a known entity for a lot of different reasons, not just to comic book fans, but to the general public. And some of that has to do with Suicide Squad, and some of that has to do with being inundated with Harley Quinn stuff and entertainment in general, okay? So you need at least this first trailer to be Harley Quinn-centric, okay? And this has to deal with the fallout between her breaking up with the Joker, too. It just has to. That's part of how the story is going to be told in a linear in a linear way, I think. So you set that up so you don't have to bother with that with James Gun- James Gun- James Gunn's Suicide Squad. You don't have to worry about that for that movie now. So, yes, this is going to be different. Go ahead and grab a few issues of the Connor Palmiotti Harley Quinn run from before, and you won't be so surprised about what you're going to get here. This is going to, yes, it's going to be different. It's not going to be this hardcore version of what you're going to expect. It's not going to be the same Black Canary that you remember. It's not going to be the same Huntress that you remember. Maybe. Maybe. Okay? There, to a certain degree, I still think it will be. This is going to be different, and you have to understand that that's not necessarily a bad thing. You, you, sometimes you say you want different. This is it. You have to be ready for that. Taking a break from DC for just a second because I want to talk about Gideon Falls being adapted for TV. Oh, the amazing Image comic series. The Eisner Award winner already from Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino, by the way. And it's going to be adapted for TV. It's going to be a one-hour-long drama slash horror series. I mean, the, the it kind of goes back and forth if you've read Gideon Falls. There, it definitely gets into the horror realm, but I would say... You know, drama is, is where it kind of lives as well. If you're not familiar with with the story, it's basically the, the synopsis is it's a cast of seemingly random strangers and a washed-up Catholic priest and an uncompromising female sheriff, a young recluse obsessed with the unraveling and a conspiracy buried in the city's trash. Yeah, this guy basically collects trash. It's a little weird, but it, it makes sense. And you know, as you go ahead and you read the comic, now they come, they become drawn into a mystery connected with a long-forgotten local legend. And it's you know, spoiler alert, it's a barn. It, it trust me, it all makes sense. It's very creepy, very cool series. Here's the big news, though, and this is a big get if you ask me. James Wan's Atomic Monster is announced to produce this, and Wan himself, apparently, according to the press release, is going to be involved in this. And Hive Mind is also doing this as well so they're partnering up and I gotta tell you this is a big deal getting somebody like James Wan I mean the stuff that James Wan's worked on alone I mean forget Aquaman go ahead and just go to his IMDB page and your eyeballs are gonna pop out you get somebody like James Wan involved in something like this visually stunning doesn't even begin to describe what this series can be based on the comic then you go out and get a guy like James Wan and it's going to pop let me tell you this is this has got me even more excited than I would have been otherwise for Gideon Falls. Now, there's no network, no release date or anything like that. It kind of seems like this is the perfect replacement for Preacher, and not just because, you know, the, the you know, you've got a priest involved there and there's a priest involved here. I mean, it does seem like the perfect replacement for Preacher, though, on AMC, if AMC decided to go this. But I, I really kind of hope this ends up on a streamer. 
I don't know if I want it on Netflix or if I want it on Amazon. I'm kind of leaning towards Amazon lately because they're kind of on a roll. But I'm worried that they'll put too much emphasis on Lord of the Rings and this might get lost in the shuffle a little bit. But I think this works better on a streamer, maybe on cable as well. I mean, Epic surprised us with with Pennyworth. Um, Cinemax really hasn't done anything comic book related since Outcast, right? And that seemed to work out pretty well so and i wouldn't be surprised if hbo in the mix for this as well so there's a lot of good options i'm just waiting to see which one they end up choosing dc universe had some big news already at new york comic-con this year i wanted to break down some of it really quickly of course the harley harley quinn animated series going to debut november 29th 2019 if you want to hear my review of that first episode that i saw at san diego comic-con you can go to downandnerdypodcast.com, Google that, and it'll and search the site, and it'll come up on there. I loved it. Hilarious. I can't wait to see what else Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halpern have up their sleeve for this. So, yeah, make sure you've got your DC Universe subscription ready for that one. The home video release has apparently been very popular on DC Universe. Reign of the Superman was the most watched movie on there. So, they've announced that Wonder Woman Bloodlines, Superman Red Sun going to be available on there. And guess what else we're getting? A new Justice League Dark animated movie called Justice League Dark Apocalypse. So that wasn't just a one-off that we've got. And I assume, without knowing for sure, that Matt Ryan will be back on board as John Constantine. I would think you don't let that guy not play Constantine if you have the option, okay? Here's one that's got my attention. It's called Bizarro TV. It's going to be a mixed-media series. And what that means is it's going to be live-action and animation. It's going to be a little bit of both. So that alone is very cool. It's going to feature fan favorite characters from the obscure corners of DC. This is my only chance to get a Doctor Fate anything, isn't it? Red Tornado, maybe? Phantom Stranger? I mean, we're talking about people that have gotten shorts on DC Showcase. This is kind of what this is for now. This is a chance to say, well, there's no way we're going to do a Dr. Fate live action series. There's no way we'd ever do a series based on Red Tornado. Don't even at me about the whole Supergirl Red Tornado thing, okay? I still love the character. I don't care about how that worked out. Now, but, but you know, these are these deep-cut characters. Space Cabbie is one that they're already talking about. These are these deep-cut characters that, that are still pretty cool, but you would, you know, you wouldn't necessarily roll the dice on a, on a whole series for, and that's where this stuff is going to live. And you know what it also is? It's a testing ground. To say, wow, that was super popular. Maybe we should think about incorporating this character more. So a brilliant move by DC on this and and perfect for DC Universe. Another thing I think is really interesting is they partnered up with Ideas United for something called DCU Unscripted. And it basically is inviting emerging creators and dedicated fans to submit unscripted story ideas. So it's almost like a reality TV-based type of thing, but it's something you can actually get involved in. If you've had an idea just sitting in the corner of your mind and you're thinking, man, I, I bet DC would love this. Well, you've got a chance to find out because you've absolute, you can absolutely just go to DC and be like, hey, here's my idea. So something to think about. And that, that's some of the really big news that's come out of New York Comic Con from DC Universe so far. Really quickly, the new Jason Bourne movie might be in the works, according to Cinema Blend. Producers of, producer of Treadstone, Ben Smith, was talking to Cinema Blend, and here's what he said, quote, What we're doing within, within that, talking about the Jason Bourne movie, will there be connected tissue in terms of are we all existing within the same world and universe? 
Absolutely. The details are still under wraps. Now, he's talking about the movie connecting to the Treadstone series, which I was just talking about earlier. Now, Matt Damon's been very noncommittal in the past about returning to the role of Jason Bourne, but he hasn't closed the door on it completely. Here's the deal. And maybe I, I, I feel this way because Treadstone didn't completely blow me away, although I still did enjoy it. This is, is this a big risk? And you're just kind of assuming that everybody's going to be into Treadstone, right? And, and maybe they will be. And, and you can't, it's really hard to base anything off one episode, but obviously they feel like they've got something here to be able to make a statement like that about connecting things. Now, it could be a loose connection too. Let's just keep that in mind. So I'm not saying it's going to be completely connected with characters crossing over and all that stuff. There's, it's way too early to know that. But it's a big assumption that Treadstone's just going to be so successful that you want to connect it to a new feature Jason Bourne movie. you got to be really careful with the whole connected thing. Just because Marvel's been able to make it work pretty well doesn't mean that everybody can make it work. And let's say you don't get Matt Damon. How did that work out last time? And I love Jeremy Renner, and I actually thought Bourne Legacy wasn't bad. But that did not work out well for you last time when you didn't have Matt Damon in a Jason Bourne movie, so much so that you had to bring him back for that Jason Bourne movie and make sure that you had him to make sure it succeeded. And even that, you know, didn't quite live up to the expectations of the of the first few Bourne movies. And how could it? Because they were amazing. So I, I don't know, and this by no means is, is a sure thing, I don't think, but... I mean, you're putting a lot of chips in the in the in the treadstone here, and I'm not sure that that is the way to go. And then, really quickly, walking the floor at New York Comic Con, been watching some of my fellow friends in the media, and one of them caught a first look at Vin Diesel's Bloodshot in the form of an action figure, and that comes from ComicBook.com. Russ Burlingame was walking the floor, spotted it, and took a picture, and of course, they posted it on the site. And you get a good look at what Vin Diesel's apparently going to look like as Valiant's Bloodshot in the upcoming movie. Now, from the looks of things, Bloodshot's not going to have hair in this. He's still going to be bald. Still, gonna, It's going to look exactly like Vin Diesel. So if the hair thing is a deal for you, you might want to start you know, preparing yourself to let that go now because it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Now, the trademark black shirt is there. The bleeding red circle is a part of it. So, I mean, this is stuff that you've seen out of the comics, so it's not out of the ordinary for the character. I know there have been a couple of different looks here and there, but this, from what I saw, pretty comic book accurate. Got an impressive arsenal of weapons there, too. So, I mean, the hair is not a deal breaker for me. And it's we've certainly seen, iteration, diff, again, different iterations of Bloodshot. So I don't think that that's a, a deal breaker for me. Absolutely not. As long as the per- performance and the story are good, I don't care if it looks like exactly like Vin Diesel in white paint. doesn't matter to me. Okay, so I, I'm just warning you now. You want to see the picture for yourself, you know, prepare yourself now if the hair is a deal for you. And it really shouldn't be, but I mean, I get it if it is. But everything else looked pretty comic accurate to me. The movie will be out February 21st, 2021. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to dive into The Flash Season 6 with the cast and producers. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
There's a crisis brewing no more so than on season six of The Flash, which begins this Tuesday night at 8 p.m. on The CW. Once again, I had the honor of sitting with the cast and producer at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, starting with Hartley Sawyer, who plays Ralph Dibney. And the first question for him was, looks like we might finally get introduced to Sue this season. So talk about what that means for Ralph. Well, we saw, yeah, Ralph and Sue, how do you do? Yeah, um, a boy named Sue. Uh, we saw that last year in the finale. Sue Dearborn, we saw that. Yeah. We saw the Dearborn file, and we're going to pursue that. Um, I can't say too much about it, but, you know, look, that's a thing. Like, that's now a thing that we're finally doing. And that's probably the number one question that I got since I started playing this character was, well, what about Sue? What about Sue? What about Sue? And, you know, we knew when we started in season four with Ralph, if things go well, if he fits into the team, if, if it all works and all of that, all roads lead to Sue Dibney. Uh, Sue Dearborn first, but then Sue Dibney. I made this mistake. Yeah, and that's just something that I've been excited about. But I like that we did not put that in any earlier than we're putting it in now. I really, really do. Because um, I think it would have been too soon there. Because he's got to get ready for that. He's got to mature for that. And now he's there. He's ready for that. He's ready for love. Next question for Hartley was, will there be a strain on Ralph and Cisco's friendship now that Cisco doesn't have his powers anymore and it seems like he's maybe leaving Star Labs? You know, I don't think it's a strain on the friendship in the sense that uh, we haven't gotten to shoot to filming and digging into that too much. Obviously, we've, we've done some stuff there, but we haven't specifically gotten to too much of that yet, but we will. But, I, you know, from Ralph's standpoint, I think he said last year, I think he said this to Killer Frost, where, he, you know, people should have a choice if they want to take that or not, if they want to participate in being a metahuman or not. I believe he said we should have, people should have the choice. And so I think for him, you know, if his friend is happy and his friend feels this is the right choice for him, he supports that completely. I don't think that would be a black mark on their friendship or anything like that, you know. They really bonded last year a lot, and those scenes were really, really fun to shoot and really fun stuff to do with those two guys together. Um, and I think what's funny about Ralph and Cisco is they're so different in so many ways, but they have they have a tremendous amount in common, actually, just in terms of the way they kind of deal with things with humor and sarcasm and all of that, and it's, it's really fun to put them together. My question for Hartley Sawyer was, could we see Ralph Dibney the leader at some point now that he's evolved so much? I feel like your character's grown so much throughout each season he's been in, so are we yeah, going really to get to see maybe Ralph Dibney the leader at some point? You know, I don't know. Maybe on a long enough timeline, uh, that's above my pay grade. I mean, the one thing that I can tell you is, is I, I love the progression of him. I, you know, I had a ball playing this guy in season four and doing, you know, the Tex Avery version of him and the total wacky loon walking Looney Tunes. And I love still doing that stuff when those elements come in, when he's out in the field or whatever. But, but I, I love the growth and progression, season four to the end of season four. And you know, at the end of season four, when when he died and the thinker took him, and then when he came back, look, that obviously changed the guy. Like, that changed the guy tremendously. So that allowed us in season five to start him where he was, a little more mature, and then even grow him throughout season five. And we're going to see more of that now, because he's going to be challenged by crisis. You know, what's going to happen in the crossover is going to challenge everybody tremendously, and, 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 you know, everybody in their own way. But Ralph is going to be particularly affected by what might take place during crisis, and that's going to change him even further, you know. And then the introduction of, of Sue, which we'll get to at some point, you got to change when that happens, so you got to evolve when that happens too. Next up, the very talented Daniel Panabaker, who plays Caitlin Snow and Killer Frost on The Flash. First question for her was, did you have more input on the new suit for this season? I would say more on this one. And the season three suit was one of my favorites, and I think it definitely influenced what I wanted to do with season with our new suit, so this suit, that suit was actually built for season five, and I just never made it to camera, which was a bummer. Um, but I'm excited to finally get to either 
competitor to work in season six. Next question was, how will things change now that Caitlin and Killer Frost are working together? I think it's great, and that was, I feel like we were, I feel like the writers gave me such a good storyline last year, and they really earned it, rather than just magically having them get along. You got to see some of their conflict, you know, um, which was great, and uh, I'm excited this season to see Killer Frost take the wheel a little bit more and engage with the other members of Team Flash. Next question for Daniel Panabaker. Will we see more of the Flash and Killer Frost maybe out in the field together this season? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think now that we understand that Killer Frost is happy to be a part of Team Flash, and I feel like, you know, we've really earned that rather than just, you know, I had some issues in season four when it felt like she was magically showing up to fight bad guys. And it's like, wait, in season three, she tried to kill everyone. She like tried to kidnap or kill most of Team Flash. I didn't quite buy that transition. Um, and I they feel like they really earned it last season, season five. Um, and so, I, yes, I think it's safe to say you will see Barry and Killer Frost in the field a bit more. My question for Daniel Panabaker was, how much is what happened with Nora still affecting the team at the beginning of this season? How much is what happened with Nora still affecting just all the friendships as a whole? I think it really affects Team Flash. I think they were obviously very sad to see her go. Uh, and it's hard. You know, they are a family. So Barry and Iris are still struggling with that loss. And I think they want to, Team Flash wants to support them as best they can. And finally, my next question was, you've said in the past you wanted to see Killer Frost go kind of full villain. Is that in the rear view now? I know you've said in the past that you kind of were hoping at some point to go for Killer Frost, the villain, go full villain. Do you feel like after all that's happened, that's kind of in the rear view mirror now? Or do you think that's still a possibility? I think it's a bit more in the rear view mirror. I think by getting to, by allowing her to express herself uh, a little bit more in season five, you know, and f help find her place and help her realize that she's valued as a member of Team Flash has probably shifted things a bit. Next to sit down to talk about The Flash season six was Eric Wallace, who is the executive producer. And the first question's easy. I mean, you gotta tell us a little bit about Crisis. Not much, but I will tell you this. Crisis is the best thing that ever happened to our show. Because what it's doing is we're fulfilling the promise of the premise, which was we promised five years ago to show you Crisis. You thought you are gonna have to wait longer? No, 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 it's coming right now. And it's creating an immediacy in our stories. It's also breaking up the season into three kind of separate parts. Pre-crisis, all of the dread of wondering when this horrible thing is coming, what that's going to be like. Then crisis itself. And then post-crisis, what comes after that? It's a wild unknown that is freeing up the storytelling. And since I'm a very comic book type of guy, I used to write comic books, um, we're going to see more comic book geekery, I think, than ever before in the back half of season six. Now, we found this out after the fact when we were talking to the cast and the producer of The Flash that Bloodwork would be the new villain for this season. But before we knew that, someone asked about that. So here's kind of a spoiler-free kind of description. I think this year's villain um, is, is, is chilling. I think what I would what I would say is it kind of reminds me most of, and I, I'm a big fan of uh, Reverse Flash and Zoom and Godspeed and all these great speedster villains. But I remember back in season two how Zoom was kind of a little kind of scary a little bit. I think that's I think we're going to go on those waters of season six. I think you'll see a little bit of that. Not that it's going to be Zoom. I don't want to imply that by any means. But I think the vibe uh, of that kind of thrills and chills season, which is what I'm referring to it in season six. Uh, is back. Next question for Eric Wallace was, which character are you most excited about 
for this upcoming season that's part of Team Flash. It's a big season for Killer Frost. I can't tell you how excited the writing staff is. We just keep coming up with more and more stuff for her because I feel very strongly that we spent the first five seasons digging into Caitlin. Caitlin uh, had a boyfriend, had a fiance, she's had highs and lows, she's gone through all these changes, and that's great. But we kind of have left Killer Frost a little bit on the back burner. It's time to correct that. So there are tons of Killer Frost stuff happening um, this season, and quite, quite early in the season, and I, I hope folks like it, because some of it's poignant and some of it's hilarious. My question for producer Eric Wallace was, could we see more of Barry's children maybe pop up on the show? So does that mean we've already seen one of Barry's children? Could we be seeing more of Barry's children that we know from the comics possibly? Um, not this season, but we do discuss that on a pretty regular basis, and I hope in the seasons to come that we will be able to do that. It's something that I would really like to know. A lot of great questions for Eric Wallace. This one, now that Cisco's given up his powers, how will his role on the team change this season? What's great is not being Vibe anymore uh, has given the character of Cisco Ramon a whole new palette to explore because he's equally as valuable as a scientist, as a technician, and as, quite frankly, a cool groovy dude. Uh, to Team Flash than he was as Vibe, and that's what he has to discover, and that's a big part of his journey in Season 6. My final question for Eric Wallace was, you get back to the lighter tone a little bit last season, how difficult is it going to be to find that this upcoming season? Last season you got back to a little bit of a lighter tone at parts, and it felt like closer to Season 1, and mm -hmm. how hard is that going to be with not only the fall of Nora, but you've got Crisis coming, how hard is it to find those light moments that make the Flash the Flash? It's very difficult, especially in these early episodes, to find kind of that levity and the humor balance with such a big thing hanging over them, which is not only crisis, but it is also Nora's death. Fortunately, we have the best cast ever. And what has been great to watch is them finding humor in the pain, finding humor in small moments. And the writers, we have written towards that. So even in what is a very intense season, this is, I'm not going to BS here, this is a very intense season, especially the first half as we lead up to crisis. There's some of the funniest stuff we've ever seen on the show, I think. Really? Uh, yeah, where well, I was laughing out loud at Dailies the other day with that Killer Frost particular scene. So um, I, I think we found the balance. I hope we have. Got to sit down with Carlos Valdez, who of course plays Cisco Ramon on the show. Not Vibe anymore. As a matter of fact, how is life post-Vibe? Life post-Vibe is good, you know? There's this, <laughs> there's this weird sort of like almost afterlifey element to it. I feel like I've died and like gone to heaven and transcended my body and become this completely other resurrected person, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think Cisco kind of feels that way too, so yeah, it's kind of weird. Next question for Carlos was, how is Cisco's relationship going into the start of the season? One, one thing I've loved about uh, Cisco's romantic trajectory is that every love interest that he's had has been kind of different, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's an interesting chance to like explore different colors and relationships, you know what I mean? Like, depending on the person you're with, you have a different relationship, you have a different energy, you know, and you complement each other in a different way based on who, you know, who the other person is, right? I think, you know, Camilla sort of has a different, she just has a different energy than, you know, than Gypsy had or than, uh, you know, Peyton, this character had, which is 
Lisa Snart, Golden Glider. I remember. Sorry, I'm getting old. I'm forgetting things. I'm 30. <laughs> Lucky to get a chance to talk to Candace Patton, who, of course, plays Iris West on The Flash. And the first question for her was, I mean, after what happened, there's a lot of emotions for Iris at the beginning of the season. How's she dealing with that? I feel like Iris is just always in trauma and crying. I feel like most of what I've been doing the last six seasons is crying. Um, but yeah, we pick up 10 seconds after season five. Obviously, the death of Nora is still very fresh for Barry and Iris. We watch them both try and deal with it in their own way, maybe not in the healthiest of ways. And very early on, we watch them come to the conclusion that they've got to properly grieve Nora to move forward and get back to being T-Flash and also ultimately getting to you know deal with the crisis on Infinite Earth. Seems like this question gets asked every year, so why not ask it again? Will we finally see more of Iris the Reporter coming up in Season 6? A lot more. It, I, From what I understand, I was saying earlier, I was like, I have trust issues, so I, so I don't know. We'll see. They say that to me every year in Season 6. So, um, But I do think we're finally getting into it. We saw Iris you know, start her own newspaper last season. She has a new office. This season, we're going to see my character there much more. She's hiring a team of employees. We're really moving towards that idea of the Pulitzer Prize winning journalists that we know from the comics. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that. I didn't want this show to end without us doing that. You know, comic book fans know her as this ace reporter, and so I wanted us to, to get to that before it all is said and done. I think this is a good way to end it. My final question for Candace Patton was, I mean, is there a potential for another Girls' Night episode coming up on the show? Are we going to be looking forward to maybe another Girls' Night episode? Oh my gosh, forgot about that. I would love that. I don't know. Maybe during the crossovers there's a moment for the ladies to get together. I don't know. It's, it's such a missed opportunity, I feel like. you got these two... You know, iconic reporters, I feel like they should know and meet each other. So who knows? I, I, it's, it's not impossible. I would love that. Let's face it. When you think Crisis on Infinite Earths, one of the first characters you think of, other than maybe Supergirl, is The Flash, right? If you've read those comics. And just knowing that that's coming this season and the anticipation that that builds, that alone is enough to want to watch The Flash every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock on the CW. But there's so many other reasons. I think this actually has the potential to be the best season of the flash yet we'll have to wait and find out that's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast again thanks to the folks at warner brothers for letting me sit down with the cast of the flash at comic-con and of course the folks at fox for letting me talk to keiko again about prodigal son and that season every monday night at nine o'clock eastern on fox now I, there's something else brewing for the down and nerdy podcast as well and that means we're going to be doing arrowverse watch parties this year on the TV Co. app. So go to your favorite app store, Apple, iTunes, or Google Play. Download TV Co. Starting with Batwoman this Sunday at 8 o'clock on the CW. Going to be doing a watch party. So while you're watching the show, I'll watch it with you. We can interact with each other. So find me at Down and Nerdy on the TV Co. app or search for Down and Nerdy. And you'll find me on there. Follow me. We can watch the show together. It's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to do that throughout the season and going into crisis. It's going to be a blast. You can also follow along on social media, of course, as well, at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.